Hey, this is Jennifer Helms, and you're listening to Minutes No Limits. Chapter 16, Failure. Definition, activist. One who has a record of power or policy change. The Temple University classroom started filling. Bodies hugging, smiles and small talk and catching up. It all annoyed me annoyed me as I sat, stood, and then sat again at the professor's desk, hoping to begin our black student union meeting on time. It was early September 2007. We were laughing and chatting in Philly, but that day in Louisiana, six teenage lives hung in the balance. We had devised a campaign to free them. I was prepared to present it in order to secure organizers to execute it. I hardly suspected I was bound to fail. To understand why racism lives is to understand the history of anti-racist failure. Why people have failed to create anti-racist societies. To understand the racial history of failure is to understand failed solutions and strategies. To understand failed solutions and strategies is to understand their cradles, failed racial ideologies. Incorrect conceptions of, of race as a uh, I'm so sorry. I my speech is really off today. Um, incorrect conceptions of race as a social construct as opposed to a power construct, or racial history as a singular march of racial progress as opposed to a duel of anti-racist and racist pro- progress, of the race problem as rooted in ignorance and hate as opposed to powerful self-interest, all come together to produce solutions bound to fail. Terms and sayings like I'm not racist and race neutral and post-racial and colorblind and only one race, the human race, and only racists speak about race and black people can't be racist and white people are evil are bound to fail in identifying and eliminating racist power and policy. Strategies flouting intersectionality are bound to fail the most degraded racial groups. Civilizing programs will fail since all racial groups are already on the same cultural level. Behavioral enrichment programs like mentoring and educational programs can help individuals but are bound to fail racial groups, which are held back by bad policies, not bad behavior. Healing symptoms instead of changing policies is bound to fail in healing society. Challenging the conjoined twins separately is bound to fail to address economic racial inequity. Gentrifying integration is bound to fail non-white cultures. All of these ideas are bound to fail because they have consistently failed in the past. But for some reason, their failure doesn't seem to matter. They remain the most popular conceptions and strategies and solutions to combat racism because they stem from the most popular racial ideologies. These repetitive failures exact a toll. Racial history does not repeat harmlessly. Instead, its devastation multiplies when generation after generation repeats the same failed strategies and solutions and ideologies rather than burying past failures in the caskets of past generations. Early white abolitionists met regularly at a national convention, thinking the anti-slavery solution rested in continuing, quote, our parental care over free blacks, as they stated in 1805. 
White abolitionists lorded over black behavior as if on good black, quote, conduct must in some measure depend the liberation of their brethren, as their convention stated in 1804. The white judge birthed the black judge, quote, the further decrease of prejudice and the amelioration of the condition of thousands of our brethren who are yet in bondage greatly depend on our conduct. Samuel Cornish and John Restworm wrote on March 16th, 1827, in one of the opening editorials of Freedom's Journal, the first American, African-American newspaper. I grew up on this same failed strategy more than 150 years later. Generations of black bodies have been raised by the judges of uplift suasion. The judges strap the entire black race on the black body's back, shove the burden, the burdened black body into white spaces, order the burdened black body to always act in upstanding manner to persuade away right, white racism, and punish poor black conduct with sentences of shame for reinforcing racism for bringing the race down. I felt the burden my whole black life to be perfect before both white people and the black people judging whether I am representing the race well. The judges never let me just be, be myself, be my imperfect self. It felt cool inside sometime in the autumn of 2011. Sadika and I had been dating for months. I looked at this Spellman sister and Georgia Peach as a future wife, smitten by her affability as much as her elegance, by her perceptiveness as much as her easygoing sense of humor, smitten by her love of black people as much as her love of saving human lives as a physician. She, too, had been raised in a middle-income black home by similarly-aged parents who cut their teeth in the movement, who brushed her teeth in the movement, she, too, had been taught that her climb up, climb up the success ladder uplifted the race. She, too, tried to represent the race well. We dined near the window at Budokan, an Asian fusion restaurant in Old City, Philadelphia. On the opposite wall, a massive gold statue of Buddha sat on a tiny stage at almost table level, against a red background that faded into a black center. Eyes closed, hands clasped, at peace not bothering anyone, certainly not Sadika, but the statue attracted a middle-aged, brown-haired, overweight, white guy. Clearly drunk, he climbed onto the tiny stage and started fondling Buddha before his laughing audience of drunk friends at a nearby table. I had learned a long time ago to tune out the antics of drunk white people doing things that could get a black person arrested. Harmless white fun is black lawlessness. His loud laugh summoned Sadika's look. Oh my God, she said quietly. What is this guy doing? She turned back to her plate, took a bite, and looked up as she swallowed. At least he's not black. I was taken back, but immediately recognized myself, my own thoughts, in Sadika's face. How would you feel if he was black? I asked her, and myself. I'd be really embarrassed, she said, speaking for me, and for so many of us trapped on the plantation of uplift suasion. Quote, because we don't need anyone making us look bad. In front of white people, I asked her. Yes, it makes them look down on us, makes them more racist. We thought on a false continuum from more racist to less racist to not racist. We believed good black behavior made white people less racist, even when our experiences told us it usually did not. But that night, we thought about it together and shared a few critiques of uplift suasion for the first time.
Today, the few critiques would be many. We would critique paternalistic white abolitionists conjuring up uplift suasion. We'd argue against the assumption that poor black conduct is responsible for white racist ideas, meaning white racist ideas about poor black conduct are valid. We'd critique the white judge exonerating white people from the responsibility to rid themselves of their own racist ideas. Upwardly mobile black people deflecting responsibility for changing racist policy by imagining they are uplifting the race by uplifting themselves. The near impossibility of perfectly executing uplift persuasion since black people are humanly imperfect. We'd notice that when a racist white... When racist whites see black people conducting themselves admirably in public, they see those blacks as extraordinary, meaning not like those ordinarily inferior black people. We'd remember what history teaches us, that when racist policy knocks black people down, the judge orders them to uplift themselves, only to be cut down again by racist terror and policy. Sadiqa and I left the restaurant, but we continued to talk about the uplift suasion ideology that had been so deeply ingrained in us, to critique it, critique ourselves, and run away from it, toward freedom. All these years, although the judges can catch us at any moment, I admire Sadiqa's freedom to be Sadiqa. I feel free to move in my imperfections. I represent only myself. If the judges draw conclusions about millions of black people based on how I act, then they, not I, not black people, have a problem. They are responsible for their racist ideas. I am not. I am responsible for my racist ideas. They are not. To be anti-racist is to let me be me, be myself, be my imperfect self. Abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison did not let the black body be her imperfect self. Quote, have you not acquired the esteem, confidence, and patronage of the whites in proportion to your increase in knowledge and moral improvement? Garrison asked a black crowd not long after founding the Liberator in 1831. Uplift suasion fit his ideology that the best way to, quote, accomplish the great work of national redemption from slavery was through the agency of moral power and truth and reason. Garrison's belief in moral suasion and what we call educational suasion also fit his personal upbringing by a pious Baptist mother, his professional upbringing by an editor who believed newspapers are for instruction, his abolitionist upbringing by moral crusader Benjamin Lundy. Moral and educational and uplift suasion failed miserably in stopping the astounding growth of slavery in the age of King Cotton before the Civil War. But success, apparently, does not matter when a strategy seems stems from an ideology. Moral and educational suasion focus on persuading white people, on appealing to their moral conscience through horror and their logical mind through education. But what if racist ideas make people illogical? What if persuading everyday white people is not persuading... Policy racist policymakers? What if racist policymakers know about the harmful outcomes of their policies? What if racist policymakers have neither morals nor conscience, let alone moral conscience, to paraphrase Malcolm X? What if no group in history has gained their freedom through appealing to the moral conscience of their oppressors, to paraphrase Asada, Shakur, what if economic, political, or cultural self-interest drives racist policymakers, not hateful immorality, not ignorance?
If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do that, President Abraham Lincoln wrote on August 20th, 1862. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation as, quote, a necessary war measure. After winning the Civil War, racist Republicans, to distinguish from the less numerous anti-racist Republicans, voted to establish the Freedmen's Bureau, reconstruct the South, and extend civil rights and voting privileges to create a lo loyal Southern Republican base and secure black people in the South far away from Northern whites who, quote, what nothing to do with the blacks, as Illinois Senator Lindman Trumbull, one of the law mains main sponsors said the white man's party as trumbull identified the republican party grew tired of alienating their racist constituents by military defending the black from the racist terrorists who knocked republicans out of southern power by 1877 republicans left southern blacks behind turning their backs on the outrages of jim crow for nearly a century quote expendency on selfish grounds and not right with reference to the claims of our common humanity has controlled our action, Garrison lamented in an address for the centennial of Independence Day in 1876. On June 26, 1934, W.E.B. Du Bois critically assessed the success of educational suasion as Garrison had critically assessed moral suasion before him. For many years, it was the theory of most black leaders that white America did not know or realize the continuing plight of the black. Du Bois spoke for himself, believing, quote, the ultimate evil was stupidity early in his career. Quote, accordingly from the last two decades, we have striven by book and periodical, by speech and appeal, by various dramatic methods of agitation, to put the essential facts before the American people. Today, there can be no doubt that Americans know the facts, and yet they remain, for the most part, indifferent and unmoved. Gunnar Myrtle ignored Du Bois' 1934 call for black people to focus on acquiring power instead of persuading white people. The racism problem lay in the, quote, astonishing ignorance of white Americans, Myrtle advised in An American Dilemma in 1944. Quote, there is no doubt in the writer's opinion that a great majority of white people in America would be prepared to give the black a substantially better deal if they knew the facts. Popular history tells us that a great majority of white Americans did give the black a better deal. The desegregation rulings, civil acts right, uh, the Voting Rights Act, when they learned the facts. Quote, Gunnar Myrtle had been astonishingly pro prophetic according to one captivating history of the civil rights movement. Not entirely. As early as 1946, top State Department official Dean Atkinson warned the Truman administration that the existence of discrimination against minority groups in this country has an adverse effect on our relations. With decolonizing Asian and African and Latin American nations, 
The Truman administration repeatedly briefed the U.S. Supreme Court on these adverse effects during desegregation cases in the late 1940s and early 1950s, as historian Mary uh, Dudziak documents. And not to mention the racist abuse African diplomats faced in the United States. In 1963, Secretary of State Dean Rusk warned Congress during the consideration of the Civil Rights Act that, quote, in waging this world struggle, we are seriously handicapped by racial or religious discrimination. 78% of white Americans agreed in a Harris poll. Racist power started civil rights legislation out of self-interest. Racist power stopped out of self-interest self-interest when enough african and asian and latin nations were inside the american sphere of influence when a rebranded jim crow no longer adversely affected american foreign policy when black people started demanding and gaining that power rarely gives up power in 1967 martin luther king jr admitted Quote, we've had it wrong and mixed up in our country, and this has led black Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion devoid of power. But our generation ignores King's words about, quote, the problem of power, a confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to preserving of the status quo. The same way King's generation ignored Du Bois' matured warning, the same way Du Bois' generation ignored Garrison's matured warnings. The problem of race has always been at its core the problem of power, not the problem of immorality or ignorance. Moral and educational suasion breathes the assumption that racist minds must be changed before racist policy, ignoring history that says otherwise. Look at the soaring white support for desegregated schools and neighborhoods decades after the policies changed in the 1950s and 1960s. Look at the soaring white support for interracial marriage decades after the policy changed in 1967. Look at the soaring support for Obamacare after its passage in 2010. Racist policymakers drum up fear of anti-racist policies through racist ideas, knowing if the policies are implemented, the fears they circulate will never come to pass. Once the fears do not come to pass, people will let down their guards as they enjoy the benefits. Once they clearly benefit, most Americans will support and become the defenders of the anti-racist policies they once feared. To fight for mental and moral changes after policy is changed means fighting alongside growing benefits and the dissipation of fears, making it possible for anti-racist power to succeed. To fight for mental and moral change as a prerequisite for policy change is to fight against growing fears and apathy, making it almost impossible for anti-racist power to succeed. The original problem of racism has been, not been solved by suasion. Knowledge is only power if knowledge is put to the struggle for power. Changing minds is not a movement. Critiquing racism is not activism. Changing minds is not activism. An activist produces power and policy change, not mental change. If a person has no record of power or policy change, then that person is not an activist. As I waited to begin the BSU meeting, 
I had already grown alienated about mental change. I wanted to be an activist. I wanted to flee academia. I wanted to flee the genesis. On September 1st, 2006, the day after black students had hung out under the white tree at Jenna High School, white students hung nooses from its branches. The school superintendent only suspended the white perpetrators for the prank, which did nothing to curb the subsequent racial violence against black students in the small town of Jenna, Louisiana. By days after black students beat up a white student on December 4th, 2006, the Jenna Six were arrested. Jesse, Jesse Ray Beard was charged as a juvenile. Robert Bailey Jr., Michael Bell, Karen Jones, Byron Purvis, and Theo Shaw were charged with attempted murder. When you are convicted, I will seek the maximum penalty allowed by law, promised District Attorney Reed Walters, meaning up to 100 years in prison. As I sat at the teacher's desk, I felt Michael Bell's sentencing hearing on my on September 20th approaching like the butcher's cleaver. An all-white jury had already found him guilty of a lesser charge, aggravated second-degree battery, lining up his life to be cut by as much as 22 years. A somber energy settled inside the classroom, like the darkness outside. Our goal, BSU officers told each other, was to free the Genesis. But were we willing to do anything? Were we willing to risk our freedom for their freedom? Not if our primary purpose was making ourselves feel better. We formulate and populate and donate to cultural and behavioral and educational enrichment programs to make ourselves feel better, feeling they are helping racial groups when they are only helping or hurting individuals, when only policy change helps groups. We arrive at demonstrations excited, as if our favorite musician is playing on the speaker's stage. We convince ourselves we are doing something to solve the racial problem when we are really doing something to satisfy our feelings. We go home fulfilled like we dined in our favorite restaurant, and thus fulfillment is fleeting like a drug high. The problems of inequity and injustice persist. They persistently make us feel bad and guilty. We persistently do something to make ourselves feel better as we convince ourselves we are making society better as we never make society better. What if instead... My flashlight is about to go out. I'm sorry. Wait. Okay. What if instead of a feelings advocacy, we had an outcome advocacy and put equitable outcomes before our guilt and anguish? What if we focused our human and fiscal resources on changing power and policy to actually make society, not just our feelings, better? I could wait no longer. I cut off the talking and smiling and began presenting the 106 campaign to free the genesis. I began with phase one, mobilize at least 106 students on 106 campuses in the mid-Atlantic to rally locally by the end of September and fundraise for the genesis Legal Defense Fund. I presented phase two, marshal those 106 students from 106 campuses into car caravans that would converge on Washington, D.C. on October 5, 2007. I painted the picture. Wonderfully long lines of dozens of cars packed with students on highways and byways driving toward the national capital from all directions, from Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Maryland, Maryland uh, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina. I started but did not look into the eyes of my audience. I looked at the beautiful picture forming from my lips. 
Thousands of cars with signs in the window freed the Gen 6, honking to drivers passing by who'd honk loudly back in solidarity. Can you see it? I asked excitedly a few times. They could see it. For some, the ugly picture. Isn't that illegal? The car caravans? One woman asked, obviously scared. What? No, people take care car caravans all the time, I replied. I spoke on painting the beautiful, ugly picture. When the car caravans arrived in D.C., they would park their cars in the middle of Constitution Avenue and join the informal march to the Department of Justice. Thousands of cars would be sitting in on Constitution Avenue and surrounding streets as we presented our six demands of freedom to the Bush administration. When they came with the tow trucks, we would be ready to flatten tuck tires truck tires truck tires when police units started protecting the tow trucks we would come with reinforcements of cars when they blocked off constitution avenue we would strike another street with our cars when and if they barricaded all the downtown streets we would wait them out and ride back into downtown washington whenever they lifted barricades we would refuse to stop the sit-in of cars until the bush administration leaned on the louisiana governor to lean on jenna officials to drop the charges against the jenna six this is legal. They this is illegal. Sorry. This is illegal. They will throw us in prison, someone rebuted with a look of fear. I should have stopped, but I continued my failure, hardly caring that the more I spoke, the more fear I spread. The more fear I spread, the more I alienated people from the 106 campaign. Damn right we could go to prison, I shot back, feeling like myself. But I don't care. We're already in prison. That's what America means. Prison. I used the Malcolm X line out of context, but who cared about context when the shock and awe sounded so radical to my self-identified radical ears? When I lashed out at well-meaning people who showed the normal impulse of fear, who used the incorrect racial terminology, who asked the incorrect question, oh, did I think I was so radical? When my scorched earth words sent attendees fleeing at BSU rallies and meetings, when my scorched earth writings sent readers fleeing, oh, did I think I was so radical? When in fact, if all my words were doing was sounding radical, then those words were not radical at all. What if we measure the radicalism of speech by how radically it transforms open-minded people, by how the speech liberates the anti-racist power within? What if we measure the conservatism of speech by how intensely it keeps people the same, keeps people enslaved by their racist ideas and fears, conserving their inequitable society? At a time when I thought I was the most radical, I was the most conservative. I was a failure. I failed to address the fears of my BSU peers. Fear is kind of like race, a marriage. Fear or mariage. Fear is not real. It is a product of our imagination, as a Will Smith character tells his son in one of my favorite movies, After Earth. Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We do not have to be fearless like Harriet Tubman to be anti-racist. We have to be courageous to be anti-racist. Courage is the strength to do what is right in the face of fear, as an anonymous philosopher tells us. I gain insight into what's right from anti-racist ideas. I gain strength from fear. While many people are fearful of what could happen if they resist, I am fearful of what could happen if I don't resist. I am fearful of cowardice. Cowardice is the inability to amass the strength to do what is right in the face of fear. And racist power has been terrorizing cowardice into us for generations. For segregationists like U.S. Senator Ben Pitchfork Tillman, 
Uh, Theodore Roosevelt crossed the color line when he dined with Booker T. Washington on October 16, 1901. Quote, the action of President Roosevelt is an entertaining that black will be, will necessitate, necess, uh, I'm sorry, necessitate, oh my gosh, necess, necessitate our killing of thousand blacks in south before they will learn their place again end quote he was not joking on 2008 1870 oh, 2008 i'm sorry <laughs> on july 8 1876 a young tillman had joined the power hungry white mob that murdered at least seven black militiamen defending black power in the black town of hamburg south carolina all election year long Tillman's red shirts had helped white supremacists violently snatch control of South Carolina. Tillman wore his involvement in the Hamburg Massacre as a badge of honor when he trooped on lynched heads into South Carolina's governorship in, in, in 1890 and the U.S. Senate in 1895. The purpose of our visit to Hamburg was to strike terror, Tillman said at the red shirts reunion in 1909. As racist ideas intend to make us ignorant and hateful, racist terror intends to make us fear. I walked out of that classroom building alone. I walked to the train station on the edge of campus, deciding on the long escalator down into the subway station that the BSU officers who voted down the 106 campaign must be ignorant about racism, kind of like the white people supporting the Genesis 6 incarceration. Deciding on the screeching train right up to North Philadelphia that, quote, the ultimate evil was ignorance, that the ultimate good was education. Deciding as I lay flat on my couch and looked up at the ceiling mirror that a life of education suasion could be more impactful than any life I could choose. I ran back down the lit path of educational suasion on the very night I failed to persuade my BSU peers. I failed at changing minds, let alone policy. But in all my enlightenment, I did not see myself as a failure. I saw my BSU peers as a failure. I did not look in the mirror at my failure doctrine, the doctrine of failing to make change and deflecting fault. When we fail to open the closed-minded consumers of racist ideas, we blame their closed-mindedness instead of our foolish decision to waste time reviving closed minds from the dead. When our vicious attacks on open-minded consumers of racist ideas fail to transform them, we blame their hate rather than our impatient and alienating hate on them, hate of them. When people fail to consume our convoluted anti-racist ideas, we blame their stupidity rather than our stupid lack of clarity. When we transform people and do not show them an avenue of support, we blame their lack of commitment rather than our lack of guidance. When the politician we support does not change racist policy, we blame the intractability of racism rather than our support of the wrong policy. Politician. When we fail to gain support for a protest, we blame the fearful rather than our alienating presentation. When the protest fails, we blame racist power rather than our flawed protest. When our policy does not produce racial equity, we blame the people for not taking advantage of the new opportunity, not our flawed policy solution. The failure doctrine avoids the mirror of self-blame. The failure doctrine begets failure. 
a failure doctrine begets racism. What if anti-racists constantly self-critiqued our own ideas? What if we blamed our ideologies and methods, studied our ideologies and methods, refined our ideologies and methods again and again until they worked? When will we finally stop the insanity of doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result? Self-critique allows change. Changing shows flexibility. Anti-racist power must be flexible to match the flexibility of racist power. Propelled only by the craving for power to shape policy in their inequitable interests. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I don't know where I was. Uh, Changing shows flexibility. Anti-racist power must be flexible to match the flexibility of racist power, propelled only by the craving for power to shape policy in their inequitable interests. Racist power believes in by any means necessary. We, their challengers, typically do not, not even some of those inspired by Malcolm X. We care the most about the moral and ideological and financial purity of our ideologies and strategies and fundraising and leaders and organizations. We care less about bringing equitable results for people in dire straits as we say we are purifying ourselves for the people in dire straits, as our purifying keeps the people in dire straits. As we critique the privilege and inaction of racist power, we show our privilege and inaction by critiquing every effective strategy, ultimately justifying our inaction on the comfortable seat of privilege. Anything but flexible, we are too often bound by ideologies that are bound by failed strategies of racial change. What if we assess the methods and leaders and organizations by their results of policy change and equity? What if strategies and policy solutions stem not from ideologies but from problems? What if anti-racists were propelled only by the craving for power to shape policy in their equitable interests? In voting down the 106 campaign, the BSU officers crafted a different plan. They did something they did not fear. We loudly marched North Broad Street and rallied on campus on September 20, 2007. That day, thousands of us thought we were protesting when we were really demonstrating from Philadelphia to Jenna. We used the terms demonstration and protest interchangeably at our own peril, like we interchangeably used the terms mobilizing and organizing. A protest is organizing people for a prolonged campaign that forces racist power to change policy. A demonstration is mobilizing people momentarily to publicize a problem. Speakers and placards and post-set marches, rallies, petitions, and viral hashtags demonstrate the problem. Demonstrations are, not surprisingly, is a favorite of suasionists. Demonstrations annoy power in the way children crying about something they will never get annoy parents. Unless power cannot economically or politically or professionally afford bad press, as power could not during the Cold War, as power cannot during election season, as power cannot close to bankruptcy, power typically ignores demonstrations. The most effective demonstrations, like the most effective educational efforts, help people find the anti-racist power within. The anti-racist power within is the ability to view my own racism in the mirror of my past and present, view my own anti-racism in the mirror of my future, view my own racial groups as equal to other racial groups, view the world of racial inequity as abnormal, view my own power to resist and overtake racist power and policy. 
The most effective demonstrations, like the most effective educational efforts, provide methods for people to give their anti-racist power, to give their human and financial resources, challenging or channeling attendees and their funds into organizations and protests and power-seizing campaigns. The fundraising behind the scenes of the Gen 6 demonstration secured better defense attorneys, who by June 26, 2009, quietly got the charges reduced to simple battery, to guilty pleas, and to no jail time for the accused. As important as finding the anti-racist power within and financial support, demonstrations can provide emotional support for ongoing protests. Nighttime rallies in the churches of Montgomery, Alabama, rocking with the courage-locking words of Martin Luther King Jr., sustained those courageous black women who primarily boycotted on public, the public buses and drained that revenue stream for the city throughout 1956. The most effective protests create an environment whereby changing the racist policy becomes empowers self-interest, like desegregating business because the sit-ins are driving away customers, like increasing wages to restart production, like giving teachers raises to resume schooling, like passing a law to attract a well-organized force of donors or voters. But it is difficult to create that environment since racist power makes laws that illegalize most protest threats. Organizing and protesting are much harder and more impactful than mobilizing and demonstrating. Seizing power is much harder than protesting power and demonstrating its excess. The demonstrations alone had little chance of freeing the Genesis. 6. A judge denied bail for one of the Genesis 6 the day after the demonstrations. The news shocked and alienated some of my BSU peers from activism. After all, when we attend or organize demonstrations, thinking they are protests, thinking they can change power and policy, and see no change happening, it is hard not to become cynical. It is hard not to think the Goliath of racism can never be defeated. It is hard to think of our strategies and solutions and ideologies and feelings as the true failures. It is hard to think we actually have all the tools for success.